0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church, serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family, equipping believers to be adopted
1: in, growing up,
0: and reaching out through the gospel. Family, every Sunday, it looks better and better as more of us venture out into COVID recovery. And I hope that, that feels as encouraging to you personally as ultimately it really is. Now, forgive me, but I kind of have to rearrange here. All right, now, let me ask you, if you have to adjust the camera, I'm going to come here, all right? So, if you have to adjust the, the, the camera, and again, while we're at it, hello, Facebook Live. <laughs> I, I, again, I, I hope you are enjoying the privilege of knowing and loving Jesus Christ as you watch this morning and worship. I pray dear, that, that even there in your home, you sense the presence of Jesus Christ. It says where two or three are gathered... So number one, I hope you have a couple of you. But secondly, you are gathered with us this morning. And so understand and enjoy worship. Family, uh, we're, we're, we're continuing our series, Orphan Queen and Unseen God. And what we're trying to establish as we begin is that you're always seeing the unseen king. If you see that unseen king in life's realities, it makes life a lot more bearable. And I I give you two this week, just so that you file them away, and you look down and say, you know, I wonder how God's going to use these in the tomorrows. You all know the, the, the storm that took place in Texas that literally unhinged the whole state. They're calling it The worst storm in Texas history. All right? Now, those of you who have read a little bit about the hurricane seasons in Galveston and Houston, Corpus Christi, there's been some awful events. They're saying this is worse. Interestingly enough, in the middle of this, Ted Cruz, senator for their state, because his children said, Daddy, I'm cold runs off to Cancun, Mexico. Now, as soon as that was discovered, he quickly came home. The question is, is he represents the most conservative wing of our political system and uh, the state represents a conservative bastion. So, what is that going to have on the impact into the future of American history? Only time will tell. Conversely, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who many of us know by the simple three-letter title AOC, from her position as representative of the state of New York, seen as a ultra-liberal over here, turns around, gathers $2 million in, in funding quickly to send down to the Texas people. How will that play out in the tomorrows? You see, what you and I often forget is that behind the scenes, the unseen God is not the inactive God. And so, two years from now, you see an election that may turn around in ways that you said, how did that happen? You might come back to a snowstorm in Texas and realize that the unseen God was doing unseen action to bring about a consequence that is quite remarkable. And that's the groundwork we're going to share and begin with today. Because God uses incredible, incidental events For his honor and glory. Family, in in Scripture, God uses a man, Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II is is a a king who took the northern kingdom's uh, borders all the way back to their original Davidic borders. And that's the thing he's known for. But to be fair with you, he is a horrible king. Godless. Godless. Continued in all of the, the known behavior of northern kings, who not one of them is known as being redeemed. And yet, the Bible, which ought to say God uses bad guys to do good jobs, says it this way in 2 Kings For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. So family, sometimes God uses bad people to do good things for his honor and glory. God uses all incidents, actions, and human behaviors to bring about three things and and be aware of them. First off, he brings about his glory he will be honored. Secondly, he brings about the protection of his physical people, the nation of Israel and the Israelites. Thirdly, he will do and use all incidents to call his people, you and I, the church, the bride, to himself. And so God's going to use in human history Ugly things in this world. Storms, tornadoes, hurricanes, pandemics. God will use to bring about His honor and glory in ways that you and I will not appreciate. God uses humans born into terrible life situations, disabilities, injuries, chronic pain, and finding themselves in the crucible of God's intimate, delicate behavior and planning. Family, how many of us would have thought that we could see a Johnny Erickson Tata's ministry here today? A woman who speaks on over 600 radios is active in countries sharing the handicapped needs of people all across the world, and their disabilities. A camping ministry in nearly all 50 of the states. How many of us could have imagined that had you been a relative in her hospital bedroom at 17 years old? You see, God's got different agendas for us. God uses family horror stories. God uses violence against humanity that many of us cringe when when we see history open, but God uses them, weaving a conclusion that we could never have imagined. God didn't cause it, but He uses it. And often we don't see the outcome. So chapter 1 is really going to set the stage as as we have a chance to come into why Esther's going to rise and why the adopted queen, why this orphan queen, excuse me, ends up becoming such a significant part of saving her people. But history has to be moved and pushed and rearranged. And you're going to see how God uses them this morning. So if you will, come to your Bibles, Esther chapter 1, we're going to read a number of verses. Now, I, I ask you to follow along. We want to, we want to try to accomplish as much of the key text as we can without necessarily reading each and every verse. So I'm going to begin in verse 5. It's here on the screen. We'd like you to be involved and engaged in your own text of Scripture. And when in these, th- these days were completed, the king gave... For all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Verse seven drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Verse nine Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Azuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Asuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout the kingdom, for it is vast, and all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike, verse 21, this this advice pleased the king, and the princes and the king did as memukam proposed he sent letters to all the royal provinces to every province in his own in his own script to every people in its own language that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people I've done the same thing. Don't worry. Don't worry. It is hard for me to throw stones from this position. I, I've done it many times. Family, we're going to look at the, the, the ways in which God is working. And I want you to see here first, God used the sins of a king. Sometimes we don't realize, but our sins have consequence beyond the moment in which we're involved. And I think that you and I would pay attention in a personal way to any application as we see here that we have to recognize that a behavior that's done in the moment, an anger lost, in this case, wine that flowed too freely... Behavior between a husband and a wife or or a family dynamic can end up causing harm and sin that goes years into the future. And we often forget. But notice, if you will, how God uses the sins of this king. Uh, In fairness, if you read the scripture, it doesn't take much uh, to see the pride that the king is showing to the leaders of the kingdom as he parades his power and his wealth before them. And in fairness, they're part of that parade. A historian, Herodotus, describes Xerxes I in this way. He is quick-tempered, cruel, self-indulgent, and a womanizer. You see much of that flavor here in Exodus. Uh, Esther. So, this show of wealth that lasted for 180 days, in fairness, it allowed him to parade past his throne. The the variety of kings and leaders from all of these countries that we mentioned last week, from India to Ethiopia, from the borders of Arabia, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, to Uzbekistan, southern Russia. He parades them by him, history tells us, in their local costumes. And so now he's gathering them together. Their slaves would be behind them, bringing in tribute to the king. And they are just piling this up as they see his wealth and his status and his might He will parade his military by, and one of the things he parades is a 10,000-man army known as the Immortals. The Immortals are such that any time a soldier dies in battle or is ill to the parade, someone quickly comes in and replaces them so that they are always a standing army of 10,000 troops. These are his personal storm troops, and they're known as the immortals because there are never money more or less than 10,000. And his goal, as he brings them for them, is to show his might and make preparations for an attack in Greece. We brunched it briefly last week when we talked about the battle between he and and King Leonidas. But family, um, this is important in, in human history. He will use this moment in time to gather, excite. He uses words to describe himself as the great king, the king of kings, and finally, the king of all the earth. And they will then follow him into an attack to Greece. 400,000 troops will arrive at the Hellespont, the place that that separates Europe from Asia. There he will set up a one-mile series of boats and create a floating bridge to march these troops across. In his arrogance, he does it once, and a storm comes, unleashing the boats, destroying the bridge. He is so angry. You you hear his impetuous behavior. He orders his commanders to go out and whip the river. When he's really shown his might over the river, he sets back an entire series of one mile of floating boats again, creating a floating bridge and marches what history guesses is nearly 400,000 troops of the mile over this bridge. Family, he gathers together the largest floating navy that we have seen in history at this moment, some 1,200 boats. It's an impressive force. They are all gathered there because for six months he showed his pride, his arrogance, his power, his authority. They followed him. And they will follow him to defeat as the 1,200 floating boat army, excuse me, navy, will be destroyed by a little more than 300 boats at the Battle of Salamis. He will go on to know defeat throughout the kingdom in various ways, and he will come back wanting the support of a family that he has disintegrated and he will have done so by his sins. I want you to see that not only does God use the sins of this moment to bring about the plans that he's going to see implement in the book of Esther, but God used the reactions of a wife. 180 days of celebration of Persian authority is is capped by seven days of feasting and the wealth of this banquet must be staggering we we skipped over we glossed over the physical setting and those of you who want to go and back read it it's incredible as the feasting hall is approximately the size of nine football fields and he lays down on a on a floor that's simply covered with mosaic He lays before them seven days of feasting. And I want you to give some idea of the moral corruption that we're dealing with. Not one item of food is mentioned. The only thing that they talk about for seven days is wine. You get some idea of the luxury involved as each goblet is individual. Now, in your homes that'd be a bad thing, wouldn't it? It just means that that Twelve pack of glasses that you bought broke eleven of them. And you only have one left. With him, it is the work of one craftsman for one, for one cup. And then done again, and then done again, then done again, so that everyone there receives a glass of their own design. His luxury... The, the, the moral corruption has set the stage. And at the end of the feast, a drunken king at a rowdy frat party calls for his wife, the very prize of the kingdom, to come before and parade herself. Family, before we walk away, just, just allow us to look at the king for a moment. First off, I want you to see he decreased himself as a man. Because this is such, an, um, such a minor point in world history, a king got drunk, a husband got drunk, I want you to understand how significant it is. The whole story hinges on Xerxes caught in the headiness of his power and then consequently in the altered state of his condition. On the one hand, it continues the chain of events to bring about the salvation of Israel, but the personal cost is really tragic. He now becomes a lesser man in his embarrassment. He now is hoping that other drunken men can can provide an answer to his embarrassment. Having recognized that he has put he and his wife in a difficult situation, he knows nothing else to do. And in the public eye, he is a lesser man. I want you to notice, I believe he dishonored himself as a husband. Instead of honoring his wife, he wanted to parade her. You and I can use that. Years ago, Kathy and I had a a woman at the church who had accepted Christ down in Southern California. And as our friendship grew, Uh, she would begin to tell the story of her family. Her husband didn't come to church, and and though we've had a chance to talk about Christ with and to him, uh, he never responded. But the wife was distraught because she was one thing. She was a trophy wife. So when they would go out to the beaches of Southern California, it was her responsibility to wear the skimpiest of the bathing suit on the beach. Uh, When they went into public, he would parade her in such a way that She wore the most revealing of the costumes. And he could always point, that's my wife. That's my wife. But in doing so, he left her embarrassed, belittled, and I will say to a strong degree as our friendship grew, betrayed. And she always felt that. Men, remember as, as you and I lead our homes, the privilege of what it is to have a family who knows and has confidence in our decision-making and our thinking. He completely lost his control in his family. Family, we don't know why Vashti came or didn't come. And in fairness to you this morning, there is not one commentator, there is not one Bible teacher that can be honest in front of you and say why Vashti didn't come. And you will will either hear or you will read about a legion of ideas. Some will say that because it only mentions the, the crown, that he wanted her to come naked. We know nothing of that in neither human history nor in biblical history. Some said, well, he didn't want her to wear a veil History will tell us that women actually were held in quite high esteem in the Persian court, uh, and they never did wear veils. And if you see uh, pictures and you see statuary the date from this time, uh, the veil is not a part of the dress. So we look down and we don't know why. She had her own dinner party to go to. Let's be fair." She might have had a bad attitude too. Let's be fair. Feasting is the same that's going on in Vashti's party as it's going on in his party. Maybe she wasn't in a condition to go to that party. Maybe she stood on her own nobility and recognized she was going into a frat house and she wasn't going to be a part of that. She would have had that right. And history gives us one clue. Not knowing quite who Vashti is, quite knowing who Esther is in world history, There is a a third presence, the history tells us, of a wife that was pregnant in the very same time, 483 B.C., that would be the, the bearer of the next king of Persia. Perhaps Vashti was pregnant with what would become the crown prince. Family, any preacher's Story that you want to listen to and buy into. You have absolute freedom to do so because there really isn't an end to the story here. We don't know why. If she went there for, if she refuses to go for noble reasons, we can all see and go, oh, what a, what a smart woman she was. But we're not certain that she was any more intelligent at this moment in time than Xerxes. But God used that reaction, whether it was a positive reaction or a negative reaction. Within world history, it does not matter. She has a right to not go in. She utilizes that right for whatever reason. But the decision that is made creates the vacuum in this moment in time that we will see chapter 2, Esther fulfilling. So God takes the the drunken sins of a a husband. He takes the reaction of a wife, rightly or wrongly, and he uses them to bring about now a decision in history that we'll begin to see unfolding next week. I want you to notice God used a heavy-handed decision. A drunk king looks down and asks some drunk advisors if they would come and help him make a smart decision. Do you see where this is going? Family, I, I suggest to you there, there, there is as bad off as King Xerxes because verse 14 says, These are the ones who are before his face. In other words, these are the counselors that are most likely to come into a face-to-face dialogue, a regular meeting with the king. And do you believe that a, a party, a feast, done to the whole of the city, done to the majesties of the empire, are not going to include his trusted advisors that he sees face-to-face? Now, it also tells us that these are men who understood the times your text of Scripture says. Most likely that means astrologers. As we see that as a title within the the Chaldeans from time to time that had dialogue, had friendship with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They knew the times. So they're astrologers. Can I ask you a question? When have you ever found out that that drunk and stargazing brings about the most wise decision that you could ever come up with? So he consults and brings them all together. What do we do? What do we do? So they're angry, they're inebriated. And they're out now for revenge. And Xerxes has these counselors now giving him advice, and that advice will come out as very unnecessary, unenforceable, and we'll see in a minute, unchangeable. You see, God moves,
1: God moves to bring about a decision. That
0: will be irrevocable. And the only place it's going to be irrevocable will be in his own home, in the king's own home. You see, I I think most couples, if they'd have sat back and listened, and they were aware that the king and the queen had a fight, would have gone and said, Hey, honey, they're just like us.
1: Right? Right? They fight too. Most couples would have seen and thought
0: that this was no big deal. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 16 says this, a fool is quick-tempered. God used this
1: heavy-handed decision.
0: How could they be so unaffected? to use their authority and destroy one woman and threaten the cultural fabric of an empire because they thought they could write a law very quickly that was going to tell how every man and woman should behave in their homes. And this turned into that God used a heavy-handed decision. You see, God moves when sin seems its most significant. When nothing seems to be going on, when decisions seem to be contrary to the plans of God, God is at work. God's hand is not removed from these decisions. And so they make a hard decision over what really becomes a couple's disagreement. And they make a decision and they base it on the law of the Medes and Persians. Now most of you have heard that. When you were in Sunday school, you heard that Daniel went into the lion's den because a decision was made by Cyrus that was of the law of the Medes and Persians. All that meant was it was a law that cannot be broken. You cannot change your mind. You cannot fix it. We're going to see how they worked around the law of the Medes and Persians as the text of Scripture develops. But in this case, they now make a law that simply says this. Wives, you can never disagree with your husbands again. They're always right. Forgive me, but when has a law like that ever worked? All right? And forgive me, if a husband ever pulled that law out, he better never go to sleep within an hour after saying that, right? The hospital emergency rooms would be filled. How'd you get those broom marks over your face? I told my wife she had to obey me, and then I went to sleep. You never fix a relational thing with a law, and now the law is made unchangeable. There's nothing that can be done about it. But in fairness, how often do you really think a law like that is going to work in your own home? So the only place that that had consequence is in one home the home of the Xerxes. And it led to the divorce of he and Vashti, setting the stage which we see next week. As Kevin will come and unpack chapter 2, we're going to see that now we have a vacuum created. But out of that vacuum, we have this little statement of hope. Listen to verse 9 as Mamukin gives this suggestion. I said 9, 19. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Family, we're nearly five years away from what's going to happen in chapter 2. We're five years preemptive. We're five years early. And you need to understand, Esther is nothing more than a 9 to 12 year old girl right now. And this is the wonder of God's sovereignty. That God is at work to accomplish His way and His will. Working in the unseen background. He is moving. He is pushing. He is rearranging events and changing minds until He blooms out of this, His plan, from the heinous actions of history. He creates a perfect plan. So don't fall fall asleep thinking that that God somehow isn't engaged in what's going on in life today. Family, God is at work to bring about His planned glory. And that's one of the reasons He encourages us that whenever we hear His work, that we're aware of it and we put it in plans of redemption awareness so that He could say, as we've already studied in the book of Hebrews, while it is still called today, God's not asleep to this process. So while it's still called today, be aware of the gift of salvation that was offered to you. While it's still called today, be aware that you're living in the knowledge of that precious offer of salvation that Jesus Christ gave. While it's still called today, remember that work as it's carried out in your life. And in fairness, your part of the sovereign plan to bring Himself glory. He encourages you to accept, know, and live in that plan of grace, that offer, and that privilege of salvation. Because you and I never know how the story turns
1: in the tomorrows.
0: You see, His ways are so different than ours. When we're afraid of the future, we panic. God's got an entirely different agenda. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 22. He says this, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Now let me stop right there. Family, he's offering salvation to grasshoppers. He offers salvation to grasshoppers. His plans are so far above us. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as
1: emptiness? Family, we glory in one president. We get angry at another. God says they're empty.
0: We grow frustrated at a pandemic. God says, I've got it all in control. Don't fear. We grow panicky that life's not as we think it should be engineered. God says, I didn't ask for your counsel when I made the earth, and I got a good handle on what's going on right now. God asks of you and I to know Him through salvation, to continue to grow in love with Him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And trust Him that He will bring about His honor and His glory as He moves through history to certify the arrival of that glory, to certify the protection of the nation of Israel, and to certify the calling of all of us who have accepted Christ as Savior to the permanency of being placed before Him. And family on that, we find benefit in the book of Esther that the unseen king is vital and active. Father in heaven, we just ask that you'd watch over. Dear God, may our commitment to you be the easy. Dear God, you tell us as Jesus communicated that that Our yoke is the easy one. You're carrying the lion's share of the load. Father, it would be as if, as Isaiah describes, a grasshopper yoked to an oxen. Dear God, I would just ask that you would watch over us. We live in a time that creates uncertainty. May we be certain. Not in the times, dear God, but in the God who controls the times. Father, may we be certain in the God who controls the leadership, whether in this nation or on the nation of any point on this planet. Father in heaven, may we grow in love with the God who redeemed us. And redemption, dear God, began at at Calvary. But, dear God, will end with the blow of a trumpet and the call to glory and our opportunity to see you face to face. Father in heaven, help us not to dim our faith, dim our confidence, and dim our trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you!